Алекса, стоп. Это подкаст about how technology is changing our lives. With Robert Belgrave and Jim Bowles. You are listening to Alexa Stop episode 7. Who knew that we would even get here? And sat across from me is Elon Musk's number one fan from Richmond, Mr. Robert Belgrave. How the devil are you? I'm very well, Jim. And how are you today? I'm great. You know, I'm excited. As am I. I mean, we're sitting in Manifesto's office for the first time recording. Well, no, for the second time, I suppose. Our very first episode was here, wasn't it? But we're back with a proper studio, which is a very exciting moment for both of us. In the room that we are in, listener, we have got a number of quite interesting things, some acoustic foam, some new microphones, but most importantly, we have got a living moss wall, which is the true symbol of agency life. Yeah, you know, obviously, we, we've, we've always had one. <laughs> Why not? Just, just the sort of thing that you have in an agency. Absolutely. I, I'm quite taken with it, if I'm honest. Well, the good thing about it is it's now serving a real purpose, which is to make this a better room to recording because it absorbs the sound. I feel like that investment's getting uh, better by the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And acoustic foam's not cheap, you know. Use a moss wall instead. <laughs> and so what have we got this month? Um, well, it's been an interesting month. We were at our industry awards on Thursday night, the Beamers. We were indeed, just up the road. The great and the good of, of the, the digital sector were there. They were, and I understand they were here as well afterwards. <laughs> yeah, a few people did come back to the Manifesto studio for a, a glass of red wine until about two in the morning. Very nice, very nice. And, a sophisticated uh, bunch. And, it, and a great night it was too. So uh, the Beam Rewards is a sort of culmination of, as you say, the great and the good in the digital industry. And I was really pleased to see that uh, we were able to award not just agencies this year, but some interesting startups and uh, sort of independent companies that wouldn't traditionally be classified as agencies as well. And of course, you presented an award. I did, I did. And you're company why have sponsored uh, uh, the event as well we, we did we're a big supporter of beamer uh, so we sponsored the data category and i got to stand on a what felt like it should have been a revolving stage in the middle of the room and hand out some trophies looked very sharp Indeed. And uh, and we've got a fantastic guest this month for what is a bit of a special on the future of transportation and and kind of smart cities. Amazing. Our guest this month is a guy called Nick Earl, who's the SVP of Global Field Operations for Hyperloop One. And for those of you not familiar with Hyperloop, it's an incredible new mode of transportation, arguably the first truly new mode of transportation since the airplane was invented. Wow. And I have no doubt it's going to change the world. Nick clearly thinks so too, having worked at huge companies like Cisco and HP Enterprise before taking the role. And I cannot wait to cross-examine him on all the amazing stuff they're doing. And, and not just how it, the transportation itself is going to work, but also how it's going to change the way that we build cities, the way that we commute, uh, the areas in which we can choose to live. I mean, I really think it's going to change the world. So I can't wait. We're going to dig right into, you know, the nuts and bolts of how long will it take you to get from A to B uh, when you're sucked into a little vacuum. Yes, we are. Um, exciting so, stuff. So should we do the news? It's time for the news, Jim. It's the news. It's the news. It's the news. Still no jingles. Ah, one day. One day. Studio first. Got that sorted. Next, we'll do the jingles. Okay, that sounds good. Um, I, it's funny, actually. One thing I should say before we kick off the news is that if you want to talk us to talk about a specific topic, you can get in touch uh, on our very own Twitter these days. You can indeed. So please follow us and hit us up on Twitter with any suggestions or questions that you might have. Alexa underscore stop. As always, we're available on iTunes, SoundCloud, all of your favourite podcast uh, audio locations but itunes is where we'd really appreciate your rating so if you're enjoying what you're hearing please do give us five stars and a great bit of feedback on there as well thanks uh, so we're, we're in the news so let's get to the news uh, the robots are coming is what i've called this first section it was the ai bit 
but we didn't have any AI news. We, we, we were convinced last month that we would always have AI news, and now we didn't. I suppose the irony is there's probably quite a bit of AI involved in the various stories we're going to cover. But um, the robots are coming, Jim. And, uh, you know, as we both know, sex sells. So we thought we'd start with not one, but two stories about robots and sex. Uh, it's a wonderful thing that we've decided to do, I think. I mean, it's a bit creepy, the second one particularly. But tell us about nanobot sperm. Yeah, so this was an amazing piece of research that came out of the Institute for Integrative Nanosciences in Germany. That's a bit of a mouthful. This did the rounds on Twitter. There was an incredible little short gif of a nanobot, like, picking up a sperm and banging it into an egg. So let's just break this down. Okay, what's a nanobot? Okay, so uh, a nanobot is a very, 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 very small robot essentially so last month i think we talked about the bumblebees didn't we the 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 sort of robot bumblebees so this is like getting way smaller than that yeah so like smaller than a grain of dust kind of small is is your typical kind of nanobot territory how do you build a nanobot um with great difficulty i understand it's it's something that i don't think we can cover nanobots without going far deeper on the tech than we like to on this show but i find it as a, a funny concept if i'm honest because I find it hard to think about things that are that small. <laughs> do you? I do too, yeah. And I think... I mean, I think of like, you know, if I want to make something, and let's say I've got a soldering iron. Yeah. Like a, a tiny dot of solder is about as small as I can think. And, you know, I mean, if you need a microscope to show somebody what you've created, it's a little bit less exciting, isn't it? But nanobots are used in all kinds of amazing ways in the world already. One of the most common uses that people don't know about is that they're used to make self-cleaning windows on huge skyscrapers so that people don't have to clamber down the side of massive buildings risking death to clean the windows, which I think is incredible. It feels like the world of nanobots is something that we could dig deeper into. Uh, The nanobots are coming, Jim, as are the robots. But uh, this particular nanobot, they've figured out a way to essentially help with infertility. So it sort of combines sperm and egg to to deal with the fertilization process uh, and will probably change the way that things like IVF are done in the future. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an incredible story uh, and, and definitely will, will change that that part of sort of science and, and medicine. The second story is, is much more sort of back to basics, uh, sort of fear-mongering sex story where your cyborg robot partner might kill you. Yeah, so apparently the future of sex or at least one future involves sex robots that will look pretty similar to humans and i think we can all imagine that that's probably something that many people in the world will enjoy uh utilizing obviously the 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 show humans from channel four sort of yeah took us down that path a little bit didn't it i I haven't I don't never really think about that show, but it was you're right. It covered that stuff quite well. The intro to the article is it's the year 2097. There you are enjoying the 84th season of House of Cards on your Wi-Fi enabled neural implant, while your significant other walks into the room. Sure, she isn't human, but she sure looks like it, and she has that look in her eye that tells you that she wants to get a little freaky, robot freaky. You float to the bedroom on your hoverboard and are beginning to disrobe when boom, she strangles you to death with her cold robot hands. Your sex robot was hacked, and now you're dead. Welcome to the future. Crazy talk. And so there's a whole, like, you know, just think on a crime level, that getting back to the hacker, you know, the, 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 the jumps and hoops that our sort of, uh, you know, police forces will have to get to to investigate a crime like this. Yeah, I mean, we think security's bad now, right, with all the crazy data breaches and everything. When we have these human-sized robots in our houses, we really need to think carefully about how we control access to them. Let's talk about something a bit more positive, Rob. 
That sounds good, Jim. Uh, let's get some trees planted in this world. Drones are planting trees. Uh, tell us about it. 100,000 in a day? Yeah, so, you know, everyone talks about drone deliveries and all this stuff and how it's still kind of the stuff of, of futurism, but drones are being used actively. And there's a company called Biocarbon Engineering that's assembled a fleet of drones that's capable of planting 100,000 trees in a day, which I think is incredible. And the principle of, of distributing seeds for planting trees from helicopters and planes isn't new, but doing it with drones makes it considerably more effective and lower cost as well. And they're using it to regenerate areas of forest that have been decimated through the lumber industry and things like that. So I think and, and it's I guess maybe fires and things like that that have happened in some forests right. recently. Um, and so uh, I have a drone story. My drone-related story is uh, that a drone watched me exercise in the park recently. Uh, okay. It's creepy, isn't it? It's a little bit creepy. So it, there's a wall on the park next to my house. Yeah. And I was training, my personal trainer was training me. And the, the drone came up above the wall and just hovered and watched my exercise session. It went down a bit for a while, then it came back. And I was running around in a big square. And I was literally having a voyeur experience while someone watched me exercise. And you were fairly sure from the behaviour it was you that was the focus of this drone? I mean, Rob, come on. It was definitely <laughs> it was me. definitely you. Come on. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I haven't seen you work out, but I'm guessing it's something. I was definitely the most interesting thing in that part. Okay. You yeah, weren't I mean, just it... looking at the flowers. <laughs> Maybe he was trying to plant some trees and looking for a spot. That's true, isn't it? Yeah, could, could be that, could be that. Uh, yeah, maybe I've got it all wrong. Um, and uh, the, finally, in this sort of uh, section about the robots that are coming, um, there's a story that I saw about a robot conducting an orchestra. Tell me more. That sounds amazing. So, you know, humans are uh, known for conducting orchestras. Last night, the proms was recently. It uh, was indeed. Just the other, other week. Uh, and um, basically, a robot called Yumi has, for the first time, conducted a live orchestra. And generally, they felt it was quite good, but didn't quite have the personality or passion of a human. <laughs> Can't imagine why. Yeah. So just talk me through this. Like a box with a stick that it sort of waved around. It's essentially a robotic arm. Okay. And it waves a stick. Okay. Are you you trying to tell me that you think something from Argos could probably do this? Uh, No, maybe. Other catalogue stores are available. Other catalogue stores are indeed available. It just sounds, you know, it's not as impressive as a sex robot, let's face it, but... Still great. But that was like an imaginary story. This is a True. real True. robot. This no, is happening now. Right. This, this orchestra, this was conducted the other week. It's happening. So moving on to our second news-related story and the device that gave this show its name. Let's talk a little bit about Amazon Echo. Two stories. Two stories about the Echo. Let's do that. So story one is an amazing agency called VCCP put together a project to, I guess, it's a bit of a social experiment, see if they could replace their reception team with some Amazon Echoes. So a chap called Will Harvey was kind of one of the driving forces behind this and uh, is very passionate about the project. He's sort of in, in part of the innovation team there. And uh, yeah, it went pretty well. They were able to create most of the functions that you would need a receptionist to do as skills on an Amazon Echo, like who are you meeting and, and you know where are the bathrooms and things like that. So that was a bit of fun. And there's a great write-up and campaign on that if you'd like to read more about it. Can I have a cup of tea? And then the Echo gets stuck, right? Yeah. Can't make the cup yeah. of tea. Oh, it could tell you to walk over to the Nespresso machine and make yourself a coffee. Yeah, perfect. Um, All right, let's move it along uh, and talk about one more Amazon Echo related thing. And this one is not so cheery. It's a... Well, I suppose there's a kind of cheery angle to it, right? But it's also a little bit terrifying. So some security researchers discovered that you can talk to pretty much all of the common voice assistants. So that's Siri for those of you with Apple devices. Sorry if I just set off your Apple device. Uh, I'll try not to name all of the other ones. Google have one. Uh, Microsoft also have one called Cortana. 
uh, and obviously Amazon and their lovely Echo series. So basically all of these devices are susceptible to this same exploit, which is that if you encode an audio command at high enough frequency in an ultrasonic band, essentially, beyond the... the uh, band with which human ears can detect so like even, dolphin or dog mode basically even young humans even young humans yes uh, or babies as they're sometimes known you can basically send any command to one of these things without anybody in the room realizing that you're doing it which when you consider that a lot of people are using these things as interfaces to their entire lives their smart homes etc etc it's actually quite a major attack vector and I've been talking to some tech guys I know about this to sort of see, is this something that's easy to shut down? And actually, maybe it's not going to be very simple for them to shut down. So there's kind of a dark side to it. But the thing that amused me, for our listeners who are of age, they may remember the the period, which was when I was at school, when people started getting those watches that could control TVs. And whenever like your science teacher would put on some like crap video about volcanoes or something, you'd have great fun trolling her consistently, like stopping the video and changing the channel unbeknown to the teacher. A multi-channel infrared watch remote control. There it is. Yeah. So it, it sort of harks back to that for me. I don't Happy know why. days. Yeah. <laughs> I remember with those uh, walking past a uh, television shop and changing all the televisions in the window of, a, of, of the shop. It's like analog trolling, isn't it? Yeah, so. perfect. Happy days. That, that should have been in tech we should bring back, but we've got something else. So. Well, well, there we go. A little interlude. And so on to segment three for this month. We'd like to talk a little bit about Bitcoin. Seems to be something that's very topical. Rob, you are pretty much uh, the UK's leading voice on Bitcoin, aren't you? Well, it seems to be going that way. I'm not sure if I'd quite put it in, in those terms, but it was great. He's very to- modest. Very modest man. Uh, he's in uh, The Times I am indeed. So front page news. Front page news in the Times and also the Sunday Times this weekend, which is great. But the story isn't about me. It's about the article itself, which is kind of all around how Bitcoin is becoming more widely accepted. And the journalist who interviewed me was kind of covering it from the angle of a high net worth diamond dealer in predominantly London, but global with clients like Angelina Jolie is... She needs a lot of diamonds. Who, She's just who, one of those people. Who I understand buys a shitload of diamonds. And they've started accepting Bitcoin, which I think is amazing. But also a fine art dealer has started accepting Bitcoin. And apparently they're doing that because of demand from their clients. So this isn't something that they're, they're not trying to like jump on the bandwagon. People are quite genuinely saying to them, I want to buy this million pound painting and I want to pay you in Bitcoin. And they're like, we'll take anything as long as it has a value I can transfer into something else that I want. Right. Or maybe they'll start keeping it in Bitcoin. Well, we'll see. And I think that, you know, as times change, they probably will. So so that's our Bitcoin related story. And that's kind of what was in the Times article. So do check that out. Okay. And so moving on to the theme of our episode for this month, which is transportation and the future of cities or smart cities, as they're sometimes called. I saw an amazing thing online this month that everybody needs to go and watch. So I'll put a link to this in the show notes, click the description button in your podcast app and, and follow this link for Nissan's self-parking chairs. This is pretty cool. Like the, the video, which obviously doesn't quite come across in the audio format, but, but will be in the show notes, uh, just makes it look awesome, especially if, like you, you're a bit OCD. Uh, yeah, I mean, personally, I absolutely love things being neat and orderly. And so uh, if you imagine that every single chair in your office at the end of the day in a sort of Disney film, bed knobs and broomsticks style fashion sort of scuttles back to its desk and and neatly positions itself ready for you to come in and, and find them all neatly ordered for the following day. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty rubbish Disney film, just some chairs that self-organise. But maybe if they'd applied the logic to Toy Story, uh, you know, all the toys could have tidied themselves up. Although they did come to life, so I suppose they could have done that through choice. And I think they maybe did. 
put did, themselves away. Did they? I thought they had to leave themselves messy so no one knew yes, that they were alive. Of course they did. My bad. My Toy Story memory is clearly not up to scratch. And also, Toy Story is just an animation. It's not real. I just wanted to clear that up. It's important to clear that up. Yeah. Yeah. But these were real chairs that could drive themselves back to their parked position. Absolutely. And and very well they did it too. And so another amazing story I saw this month was all about an autonomous bus that's being put in around the Olympic Park. Have you read up on this one, Jim? Yeah, I've had a good look at that. And and, uh, what I think is, you know, obviously the Olympics, part of um, the Olympic Park is sort of leaving a legacy. And I've been doing a little bit of uh, looking at if we can do some work with the London Loughborough uh, campus, the university campus that's out there. Uh, And one of the things that was announced uh, this week is that they're they're having autonomous buses that will take people around on the park. Um, And uh, what I like about the buses is they look kind of, cute uh okay and they, they've got funny little wheels they've got alloys they've got some like but they're small alloys and so this like, little bus that just drives itself around the olympic park and so it's got how many people can get on it looks um i'd say about 15 okay so i like, have to sort of quantify it so like a sort of little bread van almost or something it's almost like a yeah sort of a, a, a tiny little van bus that knows how to avoid people and all kinds of things like that and it will it's kind of like a hop on hop hop off experience that sounds cool. Although I imagine that, I mean, if I'm thinking about like me at 14 on like a foreign trip with my school and exactly what I would do if I saw an autonomous bus cruising would, around. Would you get on it? I, I'd probably get on it, but I'd probably also figure out a way to disrupt it in some way. So it'll be interesting to see how it handles the, uh, the tourists that tend to flock to that area of London. So lots of people seeing this autonomous bus... Uh, then uh, knowing that it's meant to stop if you walk in front of it, and then someone hacks the autonomous bus so it doesn't stop, and then it just mows down foreign exchange students. Is that the world at, that you see? At, at four miles an hour. Yeah. yeah. It'd be great. <laughs> Mown down at four miles. I mean, to be fair, that's a pretty nasty way to go, because that's slow, isn't it? <laughs> yes, indeed. And I, I've been run over at four miles an hour. I've, I've had a car drive over my foot, um, believe it or not, with Tony Hawk in it. That's a story for another day. Uh, and I was fine. So maybe it won't be so bad. Wow. It must have been a very light car. <laughs> Tony Hawk ran over my foot. That could be a future episode, think, couldn't it? I think it could be. Uh, let, let's move it on. And uh, that was the news. That was the news. That was the news, which takes us on to our next regular feature, which is the life of a CTO normally based on the life of your CTO. And this month is no exception. Today, we're going in again with a story from my CTO. And so what's he been up to? Well, for the most part, he's been getting really angry about Apple this month. Uh, and of course, you know, we, we sort of ignored in the news section that it was big news. There's big Apple announcement time. Uh, it was uh, leaked as well. Yeah, so uh, Apple had their big sort of, I don't know, it's kind of a religious event for a lot of people, isn't it? Um, the, the dogma is real when when it's Apple keynote time. So Apple had the, a, a much-awaited release of their new iPhone, which they tend to do around this time of year every year. And they released actually not one but two iPhones, some of the information of which had been leaked. Uh, Jim has just done the X Factor sign at me. <laughs> the iPhone X. <laughs> iPhone X. You've um, had an iPhone before, but you've never had an iPhone X. Is that, is that, was that how the announcement went? Something yeah, like that? that's about how Tim Cook did it. Um, and He's you know, known for that voice. He is definitely known for that voice. So, so they released the iPhone 8, which frankly was massively underwhelming and I don't think it's going to sell particularly well. It's the um, next one, right? It's just the next one. It's probably got a slightly more expensive screen when you break it. Yeah, and they've actually made the back glass as well. So now there's two pieces of glass on your phone you can break. What a fantastic design choice that will be. But... Um, they then rolled out the infamous, but wait, there's more, uh, much to everyone's delight. But wait, there's more. <laughs> that, that was Tim again. 
maybe we could like have him as a regular guest. <laughs> what? Tenor Tim Cook. Hi, I'm Tim Cook. <laughs> if you're really good, I might announce a new iPhone. Something like that? Something like that, yeah. And so the iPhone X also was announced. And this is, you know, a big moment for the world of smartphones, really, because it's a $1,000 flagship phone. And so this is like the tipping point when a phone finally actually costs as much as a decent laptop. And a lot of analysts think that this will pave the way for lots of devices in that kind of ultra premium price bracket for smartphones. Yeah, I saw a smartphone this week that was very focused on sort of VR um, and AR experience. And I suppose as, as, as sort of really much more powerful processors start to find their way into phones and devices, then the price is going to go up. Right. And so that's the real story here for everyone. Like, don't just don't focus in on whether you like the phone or you'll buy it or not. It's the fact that this might create a new segment of kind of thousand dollar upward phones, which means we might start seeing much more powerful devices. And not just those ones that are gold plated that used to be the really expensive (laughs) ones. Yeah, not the ones with like diamonds glued on the front, like actual good quality phones in that price bracket. But um, so I decided to watch the announcement with my CTO, uh, which was Probably a good decision in hindsight, because I've got this funny story to tell, but um, I don't think he enjoyed it all that much. So they started off by talking about the next watch, which actually looks really cool. So what Apple have done with the third generation of their watch is they've managed to put a cellular network capability into the watch, which means that you don't need a phone anymore to get the best out of a lot of the functionality. They demoed this rather spectacularly by doing a phone call from two people wearing the watch one of whom they had on stage obviously at the keynote the other was paddle boarding in a lake so you know cut to live video stream of this woman taking this call and it was surprisingly good quality she was so she's doing a hands-free call right you can also pair it to uh, like bluetooth headphones as well but in both cases they were doing this hands-free call so there's a mic and a speaker in your wrist right and a, and a SIM card and a cellular connection and everything else. That's so good for like sci-fi impressions of stuff. <laughs> yeah. You can talk to your watch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but she wasn't like holding her watch to her face even. She was just kind of standing there holding a paddle, right? So it was, it was incredible. She's like talking into her... Oh, she was paddling, but she, 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 she looks better if she talks into her wrist though. She'd be like, you know... It's definitely more sci-fi. Get Tim Cook. And then Tim Cook's like, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, something like that? Yeah. I, lo- I love it. I, I feel love- like... I feel like it's going a bit Batman at this stage. I love the paddleboarding in the morning. <laughs> and so... Um, a bit Donald, Donald Trump then. Yeah. He's getting over towards Donald Trump. Yeah. Build a wall. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so uh, my CTO was delighted with the watch because this was a genuine step forward in terms of technology. Having They fitted a lot in there, haven't they? Yeah. They fitted a lot in, the, in a small it's, space. It's not even any bigger than the last one. So it, it looks like that might actually be a really amazing step forward. And then... So then we get to the, the Apple iPhone X announcement and... It was disappointing because actually a lot of the hardware that they've demoed in there is not really that new or cutting edge. And, you know, the phones from Samsung and Google and various other manufacturers have kind of been at that level of hardware for almost a year now. They also have done things like remove Touch ID and replaced it with what they're calling Face ID, which means the only way to unlock an iPhone X is with your face, which might be interesting for the world as we discover all of the different weird and wonderful ways that that can be exploited. The one that came to my mind was like the... Stealing someone's face? <laughs> Stealing someone's face, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah obviously. Um, yeah, or, or maybe like your toddler creeping into your bedroom when you're asleep and like holding your phone at your face and then like wandering off and helping themselves to it. I don't know. But, uh, historically, they would have just cut off your finger. So, you know, at least it's not that bad. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's an improvement. Yeah, so... Toddlers do that all the time. <laughs> Always cutting off parents' fingers. Switchblade toddlers. 
So well, the thing I like about the features on the iPhone X is the uh, an emoji feature where it, you can make emojis in your messages uh, using your own real expressions. You can indeed, although uh, entertainingly, that's exactly what happens in an episode of Black Mirror, which I always like it when Black Mirror comes true. <laughs> and presumably the people that make the product roadmap watch and then try and make it come yeah, true. Yeah, I suppose maybe maybe that's why so much of sci-fi comes true. I'd never really thought about it that way. But um, so story from my CTO this month. He's not very impressed by the new iPhone, but he does think the watch is quite cool. Oh, nicely rounded off. Um, so let's get ourselves onto the hype curve. Um, we've kind of like ruined this feature by getting something that's not even on the hype curve and making it run across three episodes. Uh, so why we still call it from the hype curve, I'm not totally sure. It's more now uh, how much can Rob or Jim quantify themselves uh, uh, by talking about the quantified self. Yeah, so a couple of episodes ago, we started this little thread that we would kind of live up to the quantified self movement that is changing the world and that Jim and I would both live on the air reveal uh, the test of some sort of quantified self kit. So Jim did a, a gluten test. Uh, those of you that have listened to that episode may or may not have found it amusing. Personally sat opposite him watching him try and quite literally squeeze blood out of his finger into a small tube. I thought it was entertaining. Uh, and he was not gluten intolerant, which yeah. was was great. And now I've stopped drinking beer anyway because I'm on a sugar-free diet. Yeah, so, you know, that was a waste of time. Um, but off the back of that, I went and ordered a 23andMe DNA testing kit, which uh, I, we talked about a bit last month. And so, you, you know, the way that works, you essentially you spit in a tube and post it to Canada. And then sometime later, they send you a link to a kind of cool online portal uh, and you could find out like really serious things about yourself uh, yeah. that are not good, but you also generally find out lots of general information about yourself and your heritage and things like that. Yeah. And so, well, we'll see how this goes because we're going to reveal my results right now. And there's a small chance I might be about to find out something really terrible about my health. So um, I think that's what makes this section we'll, exciting, Rob. We'll, the, the, we'll see how this the, goes. That I might have to console you in a few minutes, um, and we might, it might all feel a little bit awkward, and I won't be sure what to say or do. Yeah. So if there's a really obvious cut in a minute from our traditional live recording style, you'll know that there's some bad news. Uh, While well, you contact in, various in, members in, of your family and in, get your affairs in order, with regards to my DNA. Yes, indeed. So, um, should we dive in? Shall yeah, I, let's do it. I, Come on, let's find in. out. Let's find out about you. Okay. Maybe I'll do this too. Okay, let's see. So I'm logging in. Well, maybe we'll follow up. You'll have, oh, we really are doing it from the log point of login. Yeah, okay, we're in. Um, Who so, is Robert Belgrave? So I'm being presented with quite a nice sort of interface that's telling me, um, let's see, I've got things like ancestry. It's a digital unboxing. Um, carrier status. I guess that's different types of diseases I might Favourite airline, I think. <laughs> okay. I'm a BA man, personally, despite the terrible service. They can tell just from your DNA what, what sort of what sort of carrier you don't, like. Don't fly easy, Jack, kids. Not with your DNA. <laughs> uh, ancestry. Okay, let's go in on some ancestry to start with. So um, let's see. It's going to have some stuff about family origins. Uh, okay. So apparently I am 31.4% Middle Eastern. Wow. Which is interesting. I have fewer Neanderthal variants than 86% of people they've tested. So I am not you, I'm not very Neanderthal. Are you sure you're that? That's right. <laughs> that's, that's what it says here. I'd like to find out whether you or I is more Neanderthal. <laughs> I think we know the answer to that, Jim. Well, yeah, we, we've just had to listen to your Tim Cook impressions. I think it's pretty clear who, who the Neanderthal is. Do you know what? I, I, can't, I don't actually really know what he sounds like. I just made that up. That's pretty close. So um, let's see. So I have... None of the Neanderthal variants associated with having straighter hair. 
and uh, you do have curly I hair. I do have curly hair, so that seems to be accurate. Do you think they just looked you up on LinkedIn for that one? <laughs> just googled me. Yeah, did, it's possible. Do you think they did any real tests here at all? Um, I am less likely to sneeze after eating dark chocolate, apparently, than who? Uh, people with more Neanderthal variants. Okay, so uh, people that sneeze after eating dark chocolate. Uh, I, I apparently so. Um, I I do have the Neanderthal variant, which means I don't have back hair. And mm. that's true, as you can attest to. No back hair going on here. I mean, I can't attest to it because I've not seen your back, but... Uh, well. <laughs> haven't you? Well, we are going on holiday, so I'll, I'll, yeah. um, in, I'll know that soon. Next month you will have. And, um, and apparently I have none of the Neanderthal variants associated with my height. And as a six foot four man, I suppose that means Neanderthals were shorter. They do say the taller you are, the more evolved you are, right? So I guess that kind of makes sense. <laughs> do they say How that? How tall are you, Jim? <laughs> six foot eight? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so there's a brief history of Neanderthals they say that in your house. And yeah, they do. That's what they say when you're tall. <laughs> Amazing. That's how you counteract the did you sleep in a greenhouse jokes you have to put up with when you're six foot tall when you're 13 years old. But um, Okay. Okay, so we'll move on from ancestry. There's more stuff there, but I think we've kind of got the cut and thrust of it. Um, so carrier status. So it's telling me about, let's see, um, the, this report tells you about the variants that may not affect your health but could affect the health of your future family okay that's interesting so this is like if you have kids what you might pass on planning for children no definitely not um and i have none of the variants that's fantastic news i think that is i think that's good right that's that's really good news i think i should genuinely be pleased you're not you're not going to create a disease generation of belgraves no so no cystic fibrosis for example um it's quite detailed isn't it yeah there's loads on here there's like there's hundreds of different things. Um, these I don't even know what half of these are. Salad disease. Oh, sickle cell anemia. I know that one. Um, so good news on the carrier status front. Next up, we've got genetic health risks. Ooh. Ooh. This Ooh. could get serious, couldn't it, Rob? Oh, God. Okay, this is... Yeah. So, okay, the news is good, but this could have been really hard, actually, because this tells me how likely it is... Well, or rather, whether I carry the gene that would mean I would be likely to get Parkinson's. Obviously, we spoke with Emma and Julie on from Parkinson's yeah, UK a couple of episodes about ago. that, and you know, amazing hearing about how that changes somebody's life and and how challenging that could be. So, thankfully, it doesn't look like I have to worry too much about that. Uh, late onset Alzheimer's as well is is listed here as something I'm I'm not um, likely to get, um, and a few other different things. There's one here that apparently I have a slightly increased risk of, which is age related macular degeneration. So. Um, so your muscles. Yeah. So it looks like, I, I, so I've clicked on that and it's kind of taken me through. This is fascinating. I really would encourage you to go and do this. This is this is amazing. Um, so it's telling me a bit of information about that and that I have a, a very slightly increased risk of de- developing AMD, as they call it. Um, and then the lifestyle and other factors might affect that. So I guess that's kind of something that's good to be aware of, right? Because I can perhaps change the the my lifestyle choices to because um, that's muscle you know, related. So you, you could have an exercise regime that right. could make that that much less likely. Maybe I should come and be watched exercising in the park by a drone with you. Yeah, if you want to. Yeah, that'd be great. Then they definitely would be looking at us. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and other things. What have we got? Traits. So. Uh, asparagus odor detection it's likely that i can smell asparagus can you smell asparagus now (laughs) can you smell that asparagus that's what that smell is i'd have thought you'd have detected that from your dna (laughs) apparently so look as it goes this has been pretty 
pretty favourable. So I'm feeling like this is a great thing to do. You know, apologies if you go and do it and find out that you're going to die young or something. But, you know, look, joking apart, I think the quantified self-movement is an amazing thing because it just gives you an opportunity to learn a bit more about yourself and, and ultimately to change your lifestyle, right? And change the way that you yeah. you live and, and give yourself a fighting chance of avoiding some of this stuff. You can be the change you want to see. <laughs> yes, you can. We thought we'd drop a little cliche in at the end of that section. And uh, look, that's probably enough about me and my DNA results. But, um, well, I'm glad that didn't go badly. Yeah, it was really good. It really, I'm really fascinating. I'm really keen to do it now as well. So maybe we'll, we'll carry on this feature. Again, I've got one more thing to talk about before we bring our guest in. Yeah, so before Nick joins us, it's time to cover some retro tech we'd like to bring back. What have we got this month, Jim? Well, so I was uh, thinking about transport and the future of transport. And that's yep. kind of what we're talking about today. And I, I thought about what, what was my favourite car I've ever had. Okay. And uh, I had, I used to have a, a Fiat X19. Ooh. Have you seen the picture? That's a terrible car. <laughs> Why do you want to bring that back? Because, you know, it had pop-up lights. It was pretty cool. Uh, okay. I loved my pop-up lights. Can't was, go too far wrong with pop-up lights. It's mid-engined um, and it had a Targa top. Okay. Um, so this meant several things. I, I, I sort of loved this car because of how terrible it was in so many ways. But it was the inspiration for the Toyota MR2 as well. Is that, that's Which kind of was like a fantastic a, car. Yeah. Well, so, you know, it totally inspired it. I mean, it's basically a rip-off of this car. But... Um, the engine's mid-engine, so there's no engine in the front, and there's a pop-off Targa roof that's slotted into the bonnet. Uh, but okay. what, and it was a pretty fast car. I only had a small engine. Mine was a 1500. Um, and uh, if you drove very quickly in it, the whole front of the car lifted up because there was no weight at the front. Right. So you felt like you had literally no control over the steering at all. And that just gave me some of the most scary but, you know, Invigorating, exciting moments of driving in my life. I, I was doing 120 miles an hour once in that car with the front sort of just like literally floating. Basically doing a wheelie at the same a time. A wheelie in a car. And so the tech you'd like to bring back is a terrible car that nearly killed you. Yes, exactly. But perhaps led the way for greater things thereafter. Absolutely. And that's, that's, that's where I'm at I'm on the tech I'd like to bring back. Well, maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll ask Nick how he thinks the Fiat X1 will compare to a Hyperloop pod. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we want to know what inspiration has been taken from a Fiat X19 in Hyperloop. Absolutely, we do. Okay, so now we'll take a short break, uh, rearrange the studio and get our amazing guest Nick in to talk future of transportation, Hyperloop and all the amazing stuff going on with City Design. So Rob, tell us who our guest is this week. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Nicole to the Alexa Stop Studio to talk all things smart transportation, future of city design. Well, really, all things Hyperloop. Nick heads up global operations for Hyperloop One. Um, if you don't know what Hyperloop is, you're going to know a lot more about it over the next half hour. This, for me, is one of the most exciting developments in the world of technology. Uh, the first true new mode of transportation since the airplane. Welcome to the studio, Nick. Thanks, welcome. Rob. It's great to be here. Great to have you. So, Jim, what are, how do you feel about Hyperloop before we get stuck in? I'm really excited. It gives me lots of sort of quite sort of space age sort of images, you know, cartoons I watched when I was a kid. Jetsons. The Jetsons. Yeah. It's making the Jetsons real, isn't there it? There you go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess it would be guest to sort of kick off with just what is Hyperloop? Yeah, it's interesting you, you, you say that. The most common question we do get asked is, you know, this sounds really, really cool, but tell me what it is again. <laughs> <laughs> so, first of all, um, 
why don't I talk about what problem we're trying to solve and then how we are planning to solve it. And that will answer the question of what is a hyperloop. So what problem we're trying to solve? It's a problem that every single person who's listening to this will recognize, which is transportation is uniformly bad and getting worse. And um, if you uh, look at, you know, our crowded cities, whatever form the transportation is, journey times are getting longer and longer. And particularly if you look at trains, what we're doing is we're spending a fortune all around the world on incremental improvements on old technology. Right. And basically, uh, steel wheels on steel rails was invented in 1820. I like to say if George Stevenson came back to life and went to Houston, he'd say, oh, look, there's a train. What we're doing is we're not trying to make an incremental improvement on anything. What we're trying to do is create a new mode of transportation, as you said, which is essentially like a blend between a spaceship and a train and an autonomous vehicle. So let's talk specifically about what that means. So essentially we take a vehicle, a pod, we call it a vehicle, it's a pressurized vehicle, and we put it inside a tube and we take the air out of the tube. Now, why do we do that? If you think about airplanes, airplanes start stationary, go to 600 mile an hour, slow down and stop. Uh, we do exactly the same thing, but instead of going up in the air, we bring the low air pressure down. In fact, in our working Hyperloop, which uh, your listeners can see the video of on our website, uh, we got uh, the air pressure down to below 10 pascals. And uh, some people out there will know there's 101,000 pascals at sea level. So that is a very, very low vacuum. So a pretty significant reduction. It, yeah, it's like, I think it's 99.4 or 59s. It's the fourth largest or lowest uh, pressure vacuum in the world. And we got the pods to move at uh, 200 uh, miles an hour. So we basically take the air pressure out. And um, what that means is that you just use electricity to accelerate a linear motor. So instead of a, rotor, uh, a rotary electric motor, it's linear, it goes forward. It levitates like an airplane. I can talk about how it does that if you <laughs> want. But then you turn all the power off and then it goes like a spaceship. And it will go about 30 kilometers of gliding with no power requirement before you need to give it a top up. So it is a totally new mode of transportation. And I know this is a tech audience. So let me just say, it's actually packet switching. So I was at Cisco for many years. Right. Ran the cloud program globally for Cisco. And... Each pod is autonomous. It, there's no timetable. It leaves on demand when you're ready. And it's basically packet switching. So instead of data, voice, and video, digital packets, it's people, freight, and cars, physical packets. The pods only ever stop once, which is your destination. And you can go vast distances in very short times. So, for example, London, Manchester would be 12 minutes. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And so on that note, some of our listeners will be thinking, well, this all sounds great, but surely this is the stuff of futurism. I'm aware that you're planning to build three of these and that you have quite sort of well-progressed plans there. Could you talk a bit about when we might, for the first time, be able to go and sure. step into one of these? Well, as a company, we're three years old. We, we actually have plans to build many, many of them. Right. Um, transportation is a trillion dollar uh, market, four times bigger than the global IT market. And it's based on technology that is essentially at least 100 years old. If you go back to the airplane, the last major creation of a, a new mode of transportation was uh, December 1903. Um, so uh, the three that you're referring to is our goal that by about 
2021-2022, we'll have three systems around the world that are, are undergoing safety testing and certification to get the safety certificate. Um, so what we're doing, uh, the stage we are at uh, as a company is uh, we're, we're three years old, as I said. We've, we've built one. People do say, well, this sounds futuristic. You can actually, if you want to see what a Hyperloop looks like, you go to our Facebook page or our website. You click a video. Uh, we're the only company in the world that has built one. We have one working. It's in Nevada, just north of Las Vegas. And um, we actually have got a fully working Hyperloop. What we're now doing is we just closed a round yesterday. Yeah, congratulations. Won, yeah, Great news. CNBC, Squawkbox. Yesterday, we raised about 80 million in what's called a Series B1. We've now raised just under a quarter of a billion. There'll be a Series C after that. And now we're into the commercialization of the technology. So now we're into getting governments to say, this is so much better than existing technology mm -hmm. uh, in other words should really, i spend really committing to it right like yeah. so putting it into their plans for the transportation of, of their countries a over the next absolutely years, saying say. this will form the backbone of our transportation in a country and right. we're not going to put for example high-speed rail in because high-speed rail isn't high speed if the train keeps stopping and if you just slice a little bit off the journey then um you're not truly transformational i mean we the 12 minutes london to manchester um is truly transformational, but yeah. it's not just the speed. If, if you imagine, you know, we're sitting here in London, there's a tube station just down the road. To people to wrap their head around this, imagine if you could walk into the London Underground in the future and think about, if you want to go today, London Underground from point A to point B, and there are six stops on, on the way, or maybe two lines, yeah. you have to, everybody has to stop. You have to change tube. The Hyperloop only ever stops once. So imagine if you could go anywhere on the London Underground, the carriage you got into only ever stopped at your destination. And everybody gets in different carriages based on your uh, destination. So when you say, I want to go to Edinburgh, you get in the Edinburgh pod. Right. If, I, if I'm behind you and I want to go to Birmingham, I get in the Birmingham pod. So it's totally transformational, very much like the physical internet. And I think that one of the reasons why people are so enthused about this idea is Transportation is the last area of our lives that hasn't been affected by digitization. We all know, you know, I mean, transportation just is the, is the last big area that just hasn't been affected. And that's what we're doing. Last, last year, I was thinking about leaving London because the one thing I hated in London was getting around London. And, yeah. and, and uh, you know, in the end, what I did is I moved walking distance to the office because that was the, it's a very analog solution. But I was like, I looked at places much further out and it was the transportation that sort of just yeah. made me think. There's a lot of data that supports that. They say that... Um, uh, there's something, uh, and I'm kind of scared that I know this, there's something called Mar Marchetti's Constant, which is a, a professor at a business school and basically says that the optimum people will live and work and always have done, that's why it's a constant, 30 minutes away. So I don't know how long your journey time is, but people think 30 minutes is okay. It's sort um, of 30 minutes or less, isn't it? 30 Seems minutes or less, yeah, yeah. I, obviously less is much better. Um, now for us, 30 minutes away is Edinburgh. So I would say instead of, you know, saying, um, or let's say uh, it's at least with the totally elapsed time, let's call it somewhere between Leeds and Newcastle. But yeah, I think Edinburgh is just slightly more, but it doesn't matter. It's so short. So what if you could live in Newcastle and get to Canary Wharf in 30 minutes? 
It would be uh, incredible. Well, what would happen is that we reverse uh, this whole rush into cities, and you could get a four-bedroom detached with a nice view of... We'd of, redistribute of, uh, the wealth of the we country. Could, yeah, so there are social implications and political implications, uh, because as somebody who's from the north, a lot of the money and the wealth is constantly coming into the cities, and that's happening all into London. That's happening all the way around the world. That concentration effect, right, of yeah. urbanization in this, big this cities. This stands a chance for... We can change where you, where you live and where you work, changes and so where you put your company it definitely um, changes, changes that because i i know when i've i've looked at planning a second office for manifesto um we're based in central london shoreditch high street and i looked my limit was sort of nottingham because i went is it less than two hours right uh, and and i went so i was looking at decent university cities less than two hours from london and i'd have the whole country available to me in 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 this picture so and and like I'm sitting here uh, grinning ear to ear because I just it's so profound the difference this is going to make to the world and society and you know it's funny we're talking about how this is the first true mode of transportation since the airplane and if we look at the way that air travel has opened up the world to all of us and, mm. and travel and mm. migration and you know it it feels like like you say this is not marginal gain this is not an incremental improvement this is a truly transformational project that will completely revolutionize the way cities are built how we choose to live the way companies work the way you know wealth is is distributed i mean just it must be such an amazing feeling getting up every day and working on a, on a project like this. Well, there are there are there, there are challenges and i'm sure we'll come on to talk about them but but just to uh, go on that theme so I, I'm an IT guy. I'm a tech guy. I, I used to run global marketing for Hewlett-Packard in the Valley. I ran the cloud globally for Cisco. I, a year ago, I'd retired. Hey, you know, I'm going to have an easy life. And then I stumbled over this crazy idea. <laughs> and I thought, no, you know, no. Uh, How long then, was your retirement? Uh, my retirement was about six weeks, which <laughs> from my wife's point of view was about five weeks too long. But that's another story. <laughs> but I, I actually looked at it and I thought, actually, and this might shock people, it's not a transportation system. It's a physical version of the internet. Right. And if you think about, I'm, I'm old enough to, uh, without saying how old I am, but let's just say it begins with a five. I am old enough to remember before the internet. And before the internet, you know, we, we wrote letters. If I, if I wanted to swap an image, I gave you a piece of paper. Yeah. Phone calls went through exchanges, right? A point-to-point system. And now, of course, data, voice, video on the same line, ubiquitous internet access. And something everyone uh, takes for granted, right? And something everyone worked. takes for granted, and it's field. changed everything. And then you get to transport, which is the same and getting worse. So I looked at it and thought, oh, my God, if this could be done, then it would be truly transformational. Because yeah. to your point, it's not just incrementally better. We will be enabling a autonomous end-to-end journey, door-to-door, including first and last mile. So you'll be able to book through an app. Let's say, back to our Edinburgh example, say you want to go to Edinburgh and you need to be there in you know an hour or, or 50 minutes or something. You could call up a, I was going to say an Uber, with today's <laughs> use, maybe you can't, but let's assume you will in the future. Call up an Uber. The Uber turns up in the door outside, but you haven't just booked a journey to go to Euston. You've booked a journey to go to Edinburgh, and that journey includes the car to the Hyperloop, the station, we call it a portal. Yeah. It includes the Hyperloop and includes the journey at the other end to the destination. So, so it's fully all, integrated. Fully, just like the, the internet is is integrated 
it, it's Wi-Fi is everywhere and you can communicate to everywhere from anywhere. So we're creating a physical version of that for people. Mm-hmm. And freight, freight as well, right? Yeah. yeah, freight. So we'll be able to move freight, the same, exactly the same pod. We don't care what's in the pod. And that on that point around freight, you know, I think a lot of the press lines I've read on Hyperloop are, you know, focus in on people and understandably because it will be so amazing for people. But I think the implications around freight will be massive as well, right? Yeah. One of our biggest shareholders is DP World uh, that owns 77 ports uh, worldwide. Uh, DP is Dubai ports. Um, there's a lot of interest in this in the Middle East. We, we think our first system will be in the Middle East. And um, with regard to freight, people, people sometimes say, well, you know, a container doesn't need to move quickly come on does it really matter but actually if you think about the way the supply chain works the internet change business processes mm-hmm. so this is not just a transportation system this is a, a this is like the internet but it's physical this will change business processes and one of the business processes that is ripe for disruption is freight how does freight work large ships and they're getting larger all the time now 40,000 containers float in to a port, they take the containers off and they put them on the port side of the dock. The, the, and then they they send trucks in to pick them up and then they trundle away and take the, the, um, the freight away. So there's two problems there. One is you've got the problem of the truck getting into the city and the truck getting out. By the way, in the port of LA, um, where we uh, have done a study, it takes an, an average of 110 minutes for the truck to get across LA and, and 110 minutes to get back. So there's a problem. Fumes. Yeah. Uh, we haven't even got onto the pollution and ecology yeah. side of this, right? Second, But the second problem is you need more dockside. If you, if you want to do 20% more containers, you need 20% more physical space. Well, ports tend to be surrounded by cities. Land tends to be expensive. So what if you, instead of trying to just, you know, invest in perhaps better cranes, what if we were to actually take the containers off the ship and put them in a hyperloop and take them directly to what people are calling a dry inland port? So in other words, reinvent the port. Don't use the trucks. Take them 50 miles inland and because we have full track and trace, you can then spread them out into different distribution depots and move them. So for goods that are time sensitive, like lettuces from Holland. Yeah, all the perishable stuff. All the perishable stuff. The ROI on this is tremendous mm. because they throw, supermarkets throw away a big percentage. So we could do and we will do same day delivery coast to coast in North America, anywhere to anywhere same day through a public utility called a Hyperloop. It's incredible. And it makes me think that there's other things, though, that are sort of future trends that this supports. So if you look at things like distributed manufacturing, where people, you know, so making a pair of shoes in the shop that you walk into, well, they won't want to carry loads of stock of the raw materials for that, but they won't need to because if there's a demand for a certain trainer, the supply chain will be sort of improved well, such that... You're absolutely, can... you're absolutely right. In fact, that's one of... The, we've done some work with McKinsey who've looked at this and they think that uh, today where you manufacture has to have some proximity to where you consume or you float it in a boat from China just because it's, it's very low cost to manufacture in the first place. But... What you with with this system, what you could do is not only you know if I want to order something and get it delivered the same day, and it's not yet been manufactured, we could have the whole three D additive printing side to those shoes. But what we could do is we don't need a series of warehouses. So if you take Amazon as the best example, Amazon worldwide have one hundred and eighteen warehouses. 
the vast majority of which are purely there to meet the SLA on Amazon Prime for delivering into metro areas in North America, two hours, two hour windows. But if you can move a piece of freight across these distances and track full track and trace and deliver it the last mile through maybe in the future a drone or, or a truck, a car, then actually you don't need the warehouses on the outside of the cities. So this is, has enormous financial implications and we estimate that uh, with 21 Hyperloops in North America connecting um, uh, 22 cities, um, you actually, Amazon, you know, theoretical example, Amazon could uh, only need about 20 warehouses, not 118. One other data point that people, when you, when you look at the supply chain, Walmart sell $100 million a day of goods, but they have $400 million a day of goods in trucks that are moving. So if you can, if you can optimize supply chains in ways that were previously impossible, then I think it lends credence to the claim that this technology isn't just incrementally better, but it is if we can prove it, and that's the big question. Of course. Obviously, yeah. If we can prove it, we can talk more about that, this would absolutely be transformational. And it'd be like debating now whether the internet was transformational. The answer is duh. But for a long time, it wasn't duh. No, absolutely. There was um, that debate, the same debate we were sort of starting to have now, right? Yeah. And so uh, so it, it's a really big idea, and it could change the lives of a billion people. And that's, I think, why That sounds like it's worth coming out of retirement for, to me. Well, I think my wife wanted me just to get out of the house, actually. But, um, <laughs> yeah, from my point of view, maybe it, it'll be... My personal uh, motivation would was to make an enormous change to society. And that sounds a bit, you know, uh, a bit of a bold claim. But, but I truly believe it will make people's lives better. And as do I, as you say, if you can prove it. So I suppose my next question would be, what are the big barriers, do you think, to getting this from where you are today to mass adoption? You know, obviously there'll be a number of them. There's a number of them. Um, and um, so I would say over time, the, the big barriers that we've had and we expect to have is, first of all, we the first big one was, this was a white paper in August 2013. Elon Musk wrote the white paper. Sort of gave it to the world, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, the myth is that Elon Musk's Hyperloop, actually Elon Musk gave the white paper to the world and then you know went off to build rockets and he's now digging tunnels in LA. So we formed and we had to raise money, which we've done in, in a series of rounds. But the first thing we had to do is, is essentially prove the tech. Can right. you levitate? Turn the theory into something yeah. that actually works. Can you actually use a linear motor in a vacuum and use magnetic levitation? So like an aircraft wing where the uh, air goes faster over the top than the bottom, you, cap- you create a physical pressure differentiation. Can you create an electromagnetic differentiation in a vacuum? Can you keep the vacuum? And can you actually run it off the grid? Um, where you could use renewable energy. You, can you actually show that you'd only need electricity to get it uh, moving in the first place, then turn the electricity off, to keep the pumps going, which is a very small percentage of the electricity. To maintain the pressure, that would be Just it, to maintain it yeah. for any leakage. Yeah. Um, and um, can you actually get it to stop, etc., <laughs> uh, yeah. etc. Et so, so what we've done so far is we've actually proved the, the basics of a Hyperloop. Um, and again, the videos on the website. That was a really big event. 
And we're going to incrementally improve that, looking at airlocks, um, switching, or we call it branching. So there's a all the kind of, of scaling things. challenges as all you go from a, from a short run yeah. in a desert to a you know hundreds of miles or whatever. Next big barrier uh, we have to get through is you've got to get countries to say, I'm not going to spend money on, for example, high speed rail. Yeah, uh, I'm going to spend money on this because I I believe that if it's not ready today, it's going to be ready in the near future. So I'll bet on technology that's coming as opposed to technology that will be out of date by the time I implement it. So that's a judgment call. Different countries are at different points in that judgment call. And, uh, you know, we have very active conversations with uh, the Middle East, as I've said, um, Northern Europe, uh, very active. Uh, There was an announcement regarding Colorado um, last week. Um, So different countries are at different stages. The single biggest barrier we need to get through is the issue of a safety and regulatory certificate. Of course. So any new mode of transport needs a safety certificate. So what you'll see is is uh, countries will announce, okay, I'm convinced I'm going to go for it. I want to be first. And then they'll build a sort of test track. And that test track will be for the purpose of getting the regulator to look at it and to issue a safety certificate. When you get a safety certificate, you can then go to full deployment. So that's when the big build-out happens. You look at what happened with railways, you know, we know how big the build-out could be. What's interesting, though, is the first countries to move get something else, which is they get the jobs. So this is an area where I don't think the penny has dropped uh, for a lot of the commentary, at least I see, out there. So I'm going to uh, tell it in terms of my uh, personal experience. So I, um, as I said, I worked for HP for many years and ended up reporting to Carly Fiorina and uh, as in one of my roles running the internet for HP. Anyway, when I moved to Silicon Valley, I had a neighbor uh, there said to me, you know, welcome, son. And I said, oh, great. It's lovely to be here in Silicon Valley. And he said, oh, you young guys. <laughs> they, they don't say that to me now, but he said, you young guys, it's so funny you say that. This this is in Silicon Valley. We know it. Those of us who have been here for a while know it as the fruit capital of California. Silicon Valley was where the fruit was grown. Yeah. Right. Now, what happened was in 1968, Intel created the 8086, which was known as the silicon chip. And around Intel, Intel then needed a whole ecosystem of other companies that would use that chip. And so these companies grew and they were instrumentation companies and then they were computer companies and then they were software companies and now they're cloud companies and AI companies. But 50 plus years later... Silicon Valley is still growing strong. But that nucleus, as you said, that, was yeah. Intel and their silicon yeah. chips. And so our business model as a company is not to own hundreds of factories. So the first companies that move, there'll be an ecosystem of, of, of technology supply chain companies that are required to build and maintain the Hyperloop. And so one of the things that is very important to governments is job creation. And so we are seeing significant opportunities for job creation. The moment you cross the rubric, the moment you 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 say, okay, I'm prepared to accept that this is going to happen. Yeah. Not everybody's there. Once you're through the looking glass, as yeah. it were. Yeah. If you can get through the looking glass, that's a good example. Then you suddenly say, okay, if it's going to happen, do I want those factories in my country? Mm-hmm. Do I want to spend all this money Support that innovation, that industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and then then you then start acting differently. So that's what's happening right now. Some countries are very visionary. 
other countries are assessing and some countries are saying, no, not, not, not now. But any new technology always played out that way. Yeah. Look at telecom deregulation. Of course. The incumbents um, weren't always broken up by the challenges in every country at the same time. So there's new regulations, uh, there's um, new opportunities, and there's a Silicon Valley model, although we're LA, but there's a, there's a, a, a Silicon Valley model to hardware. I mean, we, we've created hardware in three years. No form of transportation has ever moved that quick. So um, I'm going to sort of take this back to some basics. I mean, that was a fascinating sort of conversation, but let's imagine um, creating a Hyperloop between two points in the UK. I'm going to the South Coast tonight. It's one of my least favourite train journeys because it's incredibly slow for the distance that I need to travel, and it invariably has a bus replacement service on a Sunday when I need to get back. <laughs> I um, recognise that. So, so if I'm sort of heading to Bournemouth or Poole, uh, I, I, I guess the time would be sub-20 minutes to, mm. to, that, to that sort of location. But what would, we, what would you actually need to do to build a Hyperloop yeah. from London to Bournemouth? So what's the tunnel? Okay. What's all of that sort of stuff? Okay, so there's multiple parts to that question, but the actual point-to-point part of the question... So the Hyperloop is in a tube, um, as we said, and the tube is needed for the vacuum. Hyperloop will work without the vacuum. It just goes faster with the vacuum, uh, and faster equals 700 miles an hour, which is the same speed as a plane. So know your face. I can't, pe- won't peel off. I can't. Yeah, that's the, that's the question. Yeah, yeah. What does that feel like? It doesn't. You know, the number one thing on the internet uh, that, that you see, that the biggest myth is, oh, your face will peel off. And the people saying that is because they remember those old tubes used to have in department stores. They were typically red. They put some paperwork in. Oh, yeah. They sent the paperwork up to accounts. Listen, planes start stationary. They accelerate gently. They go to 700 miles an hour. And they slow down and they stop. So does the Hyperloop. Right. Only And your face doesn't peel off on a plane. Only difference is planes go high because, not because they need to jump over buildings, because they want to get lower air pressure for economy, we bring the air pressure down. So we're at the air pressure of about 200,000 feet. So no, your face doesn't peel off. What does it feel like? It will feel like taking off in an aeroplane. What would it take to uh, build it? The first stage of looking at this is you do basically a survey of the corridor and you have to decide, do you want it above ground or below? Now, Or maybe a combination of the two, potentially. Most routes that we've looked at are a combination of the two. Right. Now, there's a NIMBY component here. They're not in my backyard. I don't want the tube. <laughs> and that, that's, a, that's a big thing. We're, we're looking at that. But remember, high-speed rail, one of, the, one of the big things about high-speed rail, I'm told about 30% of the costs of high-speed rail projects, let's not name one in particular. <laughs> but not think could, which one think we might be thinking one, about. 30% of the costs is actually land acquisition and moving the utilities. Now, with Hyperloop, you don't buy land, you buy holes. It works like a flyover. It's, it goes concrete posts. So you can live under a Hyperloop. You can graze cows under the Hyperloop. You don't have to sell the farm. Mm-hmm. So if you put it on posts, which in the Middle East they're very happy to because there's sand, sure. uh, then you basically just need the land for the hole and air rights. You need a corridor permission for transport, but a regulatory approval. You don't need to move the utilities because you jump over them, right? Now, in crowded urban environments or crowded countries like the UK, probably the default option will be to tunnel. So then you say, okay, well, what about tunneling? Well, first of all, the width of a Hyperloop is about the width of the London Underground. 
So the cost of tunneling is proportional to the uh, the square of the diameter. Yeah. So a narrow tunnel, uh, four meters or five meters, let's say five, mm-hmm. probably be between the two, but let's say five to keep the maths easy would be 25 units of cost, but a, a 10 would be 100. Sure. So so tur- uh, tunneling is inherently um, uh, cheaper. And because you can go under the ground um, uh, to a deeper level, you can avoid the utilities. So our belief is that the physical topology of Hyperloop-enabled transport networks will resemble the digital topology of the internet. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. After 20, 30 years of the internet, what we've now ended up with is three types of networks. Ubiquitous access from anywhere, called Wi-Fi. Local area net, uh, access within a building, the LAN. And then wide area network access, the fiber between points uh, far apart. Uh, we believe that the physical networks of the future will resemble that. So what is what is ubiquitous access? It's autonomous cars and drones. They come to you. Yeah. What is the access in the city? The lo- city, think of the city as the building in my analogy. The local area network is a network of lower speed, not, not super fast speed, right. but pods that can, you know, you can go be picked up at your house. The car could actually go into the Hyperloop. And if you look at what Elon is doing, so that's that might exactly be like what, what he's the, doing. The boring company project. That's exactly LA, what the example. boring company yeah. is doing. And then you think, okay, now I want to go long distance, the fiber. So then what we're going to need is the industry needs to then establish a set of interoperability standards, which is exactly what happened in networking. Yep. Um, think of the, uh, uh, the IP protocols that were established. So then you could actually have, you could be picked up, go into a tunnel, go through the city, go to the Hyperloop portal, go the long distance, but you, you, you're you still in the same seat. So three networks, three network topologies. Instead of data, voice, and video packets, it's people, freight, and cars. And um, it will revolutionize every business process, where you live, where you work, how you build a city, how you plan a city, where you put cancer hospitals, because you can now distribute them. It'll change freight distribution. And, you know, it's not going to do it overnight. Sure. But the internet didn't do it overnight. But but it will change everything. I mean, it, we are not going to continue living with 200-year-old technology. And We're not. No, of course not. And for me, this is one of those when, not if situations. Like, I think that, you know, someone that also has worked in and around the internet for my whole career, your analogy really rings true to me. And for some of our listeners, they won't quite relate to it, right? But I just, if that, none of that made any sense to you, trust us we know what we're talking about like that that sort of blend of those three types of network that is invisible to the average user is a key part of what's made the internet so successful and i think that to bring that approach to the to the physical world of transportation i i'm struggling to come up with a reason why it won't work it's simply a question of time for me but but to be to play devil's advocate to that because you know if you look at autonomous cars, people have been saying the thing about autonomous cars for several years. If you talk to the autonomous car companies, they are all now working on simulators because the biggest barrier, apart from regulations, which we know about safety regulations, but the biggest barrier is people feel scared to let go of the wheel. So they're all investing in things that will go into shopping malls where you could actually have a simulated experience because there's this customer, you know, do I feel comfortable letting go of the wheel? And there's always a section of society who say, 
Hell yeah. yeah I, of I course, the early adopters. The early adopters. So we're probably early adopters. So we we know that, look, we've what we've got to do is uh, get governments to say, I want to do it. Yeah. We're not there yet. We're close, but we're not there. We think we will get there based on what's happening. Then we've got to build two or three. You mentioned that. We've got to get safety certificates, which will allow us to then put humans in. And then we've got to build them out. And we've got to actually show that the cost of doing it is totally different to the uh, the cost of uh, right. uh, that it stacks up commercially. It stacks up. It's it's the cost per mile. It is the um, the green um, uh, component. It is the physical uh, effect footprint. It's the ability to do intermodal travel because it, when people talk about journey times, it's the elapsed journey time that you and I care about. Not the, it doesn't matter how take the internet. It doesn't matter how fast those packets of information go down that fiber. If the last mile is really lousy Wi-Fi and you can't watch a video on, on your laptop, it's not fast. So so what we've got to do is have some IT tools which allow you to do an autonomous journey from a smartphone. So there'll be no tickets on the Hyperloop. There's no timetable on the Hyperloop. You're booking a journey and the, the mode of travel leaves when you're ready. Of course, you can walk up to it, which people will. Uh, best analogy, you go into those uh, big buildings, got the new uh, lifts, the elevators, as yeah. Americans call them. I want to go to th- floor 36. You press 36 and it goes, go, go to door B. Right, and up it goes. And up it goes, and it, without, delays. yeah, you don't yeah, yeah. do anything, and then you get out, whoop, magically 36. But if you wanted to go to 37, maybe they told you to go to door C. It's that concept applied to travel, uh, on a national scale. Yeah, and then and spread, like you say, end-to-end, including that final mile to, your, yes. to where you're trying to get to. And, and, and yeah. That, yeah. So let's take a look at this from a sort of um, the inf- current infrastructure of the UK. We've got a motorway system, and, and, and in the US, you know, freeways, highways, those kinds of things. Do you envisage a situation where some of this infrastructure would replace existing in- infrastructure because that becomes yeah. outdated? So my experience of um, 30 years in the IT industry is one of the first things the IT industry did was lose the takeaway sign. And what I mean by that is that I remember, you know, email was going to, uh, email came along and then uh, we got uh, voicemail and voicemail was going to replace email. And then video or telepresence uh, came along and that was going to replace voicemail and email and then instant message. And, that, and, and guess what? They're all still there. We just do more of it. So I'm naturally cynical that anything gets replaced because I think people want choice and there will be, not every journey will people will need to be or people will want to be inside a hyperloop now having said that if you based it'll be it'll be based on where you are and where you want to go if it is clearly easier and it's proven that you can get between a and b much quicker then people will choose but we're not saying that roads are going away or trains are going away but you might steal a lane <laughs> uh, well interesting you say that we ran a competition worldwide to get the best hype ideas for hyperloop we got 2600 entries uh we just announced the 10 winners um so we sort of crowdsource the uh, sales process if you like and the german entry was uh put the hyperloop the winning entry for germany was put the hyperloop above the autobahn um, right that's interesting um it, and and then you you totally collapse the journey times and then it, it it would appear that if you put solar panels on top of it, it it could actually be energy positive in other words it could create more energy than it consumes because we can take energy off the grid and we could use renewables so we're 
this probably wouldn't apply to the UK, although it's a sunny day today. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe today. But listeners in Scotland might might think no. The wind farms. Apply. <laughs> <laughs> but but certainly it, it, because our we only use electricity for roughly you know a low percentage of the journey. Whereas if you take the high speed train, the, the Japanese one, the Shikansen one, is uses electricity for a hundred percent of the journey. Uh, we have a very very low opex. And so you actually, then you take the power off the grid. And if you can then generate power, we haven't proved this yet, but we think it might be possible for this to actually be self-sufficient from an energy point of view. Of course, there's no carbon involved. There's no fuel. There's no fuel in vehicle. So other than how the electricity is generated. Yeah, batteries. It's like a small, um, best analogy of today's transportation, like a small private, the vehicle is like a small private jet. Uh, we're looking at, depending on the number of people that need to go back and forth, passengers per hour, we're looking at perhaps vehicles that have maybe 60, 70 passengers in a vehicle. Okay. Um, we can levitate that. So then you, you would have, you know, uh, light, heating, et cetera. You need, you need to be able to get out in case there's a problem. So just like the channel tunnel, you've got to be able to get yeah. out. So safety implications safety and, and so forth. And, and that comes up. You haven't mentioned it, but I'll raise it because people say, yeah, but what about safety? What about safety? So that's the safety case is so important. But you think about it, if you're in an airplane and there's a, the, the skin gets punctured, it's really bad because the air goes out and you might go with it. If you're in a Hyperloop in a tube and the skin get the skin, the outside skin gets punctured, it's actually okay because the air comes in and all that happens is everything slows down. Right. Uh, now, if there's a problem on the pod itself, well, first of all, you're not connected to any other pod. So the problem's only on that pod. If they're going at 300 meters a second, which is 700 miles an hour, and there's a 30-second headway, quickly do the maths, it means it's nine kilometers between the pods, which is more than the planes that Circle Heathrow have between them. So if there's a problem, the pods are 9K apart, uh, using those numbers, and you could probably cruise either to um, the next station or to the next egress point, which is the point you can get out. You have to be able to get out. So... One of the advantages that we have is we're, we're actually building the technology to meet the safety case. And anyone who's been in transportation will know that with existing technology, you have to prove your technology meets the existing safety case. So this is not a train. So we don't we're not we don't want to be regulated as a train. Yeah. So we're working with countries. So real collaboration there. The, yeah, 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 create the regulation like we did in the internet. Let's create the regulation for the challenges to be able to offer consumer choice. We're creating the regulations and we're actually designing the technology to meet the safety case. And you can only do that on an emerging technology. Yeah. You can then, if it can be many, many times cheaper, many, many times faster, use many, many times greener and much more convenient, then you stand a chance of disrupting what is universally acknowledged to be a a system that is just getting worse. I mean, yeah. your journey, I'm sure <laughs> my journey, is yeah. getting worse. Yeah. So, and it's not going to get better. This has been a fascinating conversation. We've already been chatting for quite a while and, and there's so much more we could ask. Oh, I could spend a day. But I reckon we've this. probably got about a question each left. Yeah. So what's yours, Jim? My, my, my So to get this, bring this to sort of wrap around, I want to know what the next three major advances you're expecting are. Technology or business or or help me because there's... Uh, let's go. Let's go with the technology. Okay. So 
I would say where we are as a company, and we're public about this, is we've proved the technology, which surprised a lot of people, um, and got you know uh, an incredible number of hits on the internet. We've got to actually prove two really fundamental, I would say three fundamental pieces of technology. One is the airlock. So that's the ability, because when you get out of a Hyperloop, you need to be in air pressure. When you're in the Hyperloop and it's moving, you're surrounded by a vacuum. So we've got to prove airlock. So getting people out without letting all the air out with them. Um, yes, well, essentially to or get the pod. In, rather. Yes, yeah. so you feel the way around. So essentially you've got to prove an airlock. That's where yeah. we are right now. Yeah. Um, uh, second thing we've got to prove is a, is a really interesting one, which is switching. So when you, if you're going to Edinburgh, your pod, you go straight to Edinburgh. But if I'm going to Birmingham, I peel off or branch off. Um, so, some, so some, some men in a centre yes, moving an arm yeah, thing. Is that yeah. how that works? Funnily enough, funny enough, we're not planning on having a, a, a man with a lever in, in, in a station box. You'd have to be quick, wouldn't uh, you? <laughs> so there's no physical... You need to be able to do high-speed switching with no physical moving parts, which is using the electromagnetic switch. Why no physical moving parts? They're just not fast enough. You, they're not fast enough. You can't, And you can't take the risk right. that, that if that... that you, you can't move anything physically fast enough mm -hmm. at these sort of speeds. And it's so more you have to, to fail as well as You don't want any moving parts in this. Mm -hmm. um, so, so remember, it's gliding. It's like a spaceship, right? So we think we know how to do that. We haven't proved it yet. Okay. We're not saying how we're going to do it because that's definitely part of the secret sauce. <laughs> but we think we know how to do that. And so that's a technology uh, barrier. I think the third one um, uh, is going to be can we truly enable intermodal travel? In other words, having been in the internet for most of my career, can we as a industry, there'll be many Hyperloop companies. We are the only one that's built one, but if we're right, this is a whole industry. So can we as an industry come together with government, with regulators to create open interoperability so that you don't make the mistake the IT industry made in the um, early 80s, where you had open systems, but actually it all depended on whose open system you went with. We didn't have true interoperability until the IP, the Internet Protocol Standard, came about. So you have true interoperability at the network level. And um, I think the industry needs to, longer term, uh, come up with a, a way of having interoperability. For example, multiple pods can work on the same track hmm. uh, from different so companies from different, different providers. companies we need choice yeah, especially in europe you know you need choice you need open competition and you need the market to function uh, and grow so i think we need to see as an industry can we come together and make that happen but if you and therefore metcalf's law kicks in power of a network is the square of the number of nodes not just moore's law but if you look at previous networks previous networks have always gone through this so um, I think it's it'll go through the same route as uh, digital networks went through. So I believe that will happen, but that's a big challenge. So thank you very I've much. Answered your well three. answered. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah um, definitely. I, do you know what? I think that's the place to end. That is a, a fantastic summary of the next big three challenges for what for me is one of the most incredible ventures, businesses, um, evolutions of frankly, at the sum of a huge amount of different technology. Nick, it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for your time. Any final thoughts? I would just say that we really believe we can do it. We're humble enough to say we know we haven't done it. But I, in my career, 
have never been involved in anything where every single person I ever spoke to, after they first of all get through the will you face peel off? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Is it total recall? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, this is this is not going to happen, is it? Really? Uh, after they get through that, then they flip into, I really personally want this to happen. So it just sounds, you know, trite, but I think this is one of those moments where we could change the world. Um, we, 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 we could actually make the lives of a billion people better. Uh, and there are very few things in life that come along where you, you know, piece of software doesn't change the world, but if you can actually, uh, uh, solve transportation, a digitized transportation, then you could change the world. And that's a pretty cool thing to do at the end of your career. So that's why I'm doing this. Well, from, from on my behalf, and I'm sure on Jim's, good luck. We'll be cheerleading for you the whole way. And I, for one, hope to be get stepping into a Hyperloop on my next journey down to uh, the Dorset area. We're happy to be some of your guinea pig passengers for your test trek. Probably not your next journey. Give, it, give us a little bit more time and, and I'll get you inside one of those pods. We'll fly to Vegas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. anytime, anytime. But uh, Nick, thank you again so Great. much for joining Thanks, us. Thanks, guys. And, Appreciate uh, it. Yeah, good luck with everything. Thank you very much.